0: from chicago welcome to three degrees discussions i'm your host mike vasquez this is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators entrepreneurs and leaders in the 3d printing industry
1: i had you know a bit of a right-brained creative side and i really enjoyed the people element and communicating and she said Yes, get your metallurgical engineering degree, but that's going to be a launching point for you. You have that ability to to leverage that and take that to a new level. I really didn't understand what she was saying at that point fully. I was like, "Oh, thank you, that sounds like a nice compliment." You know, as I look back on that, she was one hundred percent correct um, because for me, you know, the technical skills and that foundation is absolutely. It's a firm requirement for where I'm operating today. I have to be able to have a level of technical understanding. But my strength ended up being building those teams and working with the people to leverage that extra value.
0: That was Laura Eli. Laura is the leader of advisor services for the Barnes Globe Advisors. Prior to her role there, she was head of technology at GKN Aerospace, where she was responsible for the build out of a new team focused on the maturation of laser wire deposition for titanium aerostructures. After negotiating a credit between GKN Aerospace and Oak Ridge National Labs, she joins the show today to talk about building high-quality multidisciplinary teams and the contrast of working for a large company and a startup within the additive manufacturing industry. All right, welcome to the show, Laura. Do you want to, just want to start with how you got into the additive manufacturing space?
1: Absolutely. Uh, thanks for inviting me on. Um, so. Added manufacturing uh, journey really started for me in about uh, six years ago with the opportunity to stand up an added manufacturing center for GKN Aerospace in the U.S. So I got to be additive manufacturing person number one in the U.S. for GKN and it was focused on laser wire deposition, directed energy deposition for aerostructures.
0: Awesome and for those of you who don't know GKN, could you give a little bit of background kind on of what what the company is and yeah, primary absolutely. industry?
1: Yeah, GKN uh, Aerospace is headquartered in England and in the UK um, and it's an international company that provides both aerostructures and engine structures uh, for major OEMs, so for, for Boeing and Airbus um, on the commercial side as well as significant platforms across the defense side. So the uh, division... Um, that I eventually got to lead from a technology standpoint in the U.S. is about a $1 billion division, Um, and I think it's about a $12, $13 billion company, so large. Um, And from a comparison standpoint, um, you know, Spirit Aerosystems is a similar type as far as being a a Tier 1 or a Super Tier 1 provider to major aerospace OEMs.
0: And what was their motivation? I'm presuming they have done other, was that their first additive manufacturing kind of push or whether what was, it was the yeah,
1: yeah it, it was not there for first in fact um the uh aero structures work uh grew out of work that was going on on over in engine structures um so in sweden uh gcan had purchased uh, a company that was called volvo aero which was basically the aerospace portion of volvo which was about one percent of that large business uh, but it was quite big Um, And they are using laser wire deposition for um, adding features to uh, engine structures. Um, So they actually have product flying on A350 uh, intermediate compressor cases. And basically their excellence in laser wire uh, directed energy deposition grew out of laser welding expertise. So the bosses that they created basically started from... Uh, hey, this boroscope boss needs to be in a different location. And it was quite a ways into the the design cycle. And they said, well, why don't we just build it up with laser wire welding? It wasn't even really called directed energy at the time. Um, And that grew into applying that across engine structures. Uh, The good thing is engine uh, structure design engineers are used to having welded structures. Um, So they're actually relatively open to a directed energy process because they're used to welds. Um, The challenge that we took on in North America was, okay, we've got this understanding of titanium and Inconel and directed energy, um, let's apply it to aerostructures. Um, But that challenge was significant because you're going from engine structures, which tend to be big round things, to aerostructures, which tend to be big, long, flat things, especially where you're using titanium, you know, in the aircraft, it tends to be critical and the ones that would make the good business case is it tends to be relatively complicated. So um, the technology development that we're doing uh, built on you know, the expertise that they had in Sweden with the engine structures, but tooking, taking on different challenges with managing, you know, thermal distortion um, and path planning that were unique to the aerostructure size parts.
0: And when you talk about standing up of this operation, does that start all the way back to building a facility, selecting machines and technologies and materials and parts? Where does does that process begin?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yes, it it 100% started at uh, just about ground zero on every single front. Um, So building up the people and the team um, and building a technology development plan. Um, so we did go through the process of basically looking at the entire bill of material for titanium aerostructure parts across the entire company, um, and, and looking to say, Hey, which ones could be good candidates? Um, anyone that's done that knows that's not the most fun process, nor is it always the most fruitful. Um, but what it did is it allowed us to look and say, you know, for aerostructures parts, there's common geometries. If we can build these building block geometries and have processes for them, then we can take those, put them together to build you know, geometries that make sense for aerostructure parts. Um, so we did, we um when I say the word downselect to any of my <laughs> former team, they get a little, a little shudder <laughs> because we did a, a pretty massive downselect matrix, not only for the equipment, but for the process. We didn't want to assume that laser wire deposition was absolutely the right process for us. Um, so we did consider all of the deposition processes, plasma and wire arc and, um, you know, electron beam, um, all of those. Um, but we did end up selecting laser wire mainly because of the scalability and the flexibility of the process, being able to do both small melt pool and large melt pool. Um, so that you could start tailoring the type of deposition for the geometries and the final application that you were wanting. So it was a lot of fun. It was also extremely hard because everything that I was doing in North America was the first time, um, ranging from hiring people and even getting job descriptions created that fit the roles that we were doing, <laughs> You know, and getting people paid appropriately so that we could hire people in, Um, But what we did from a facility standpoint is that we um, did, we had our team based in St. Louis at first, um, but we signed a cooperative research and development agreement with Oak Ridge National Labs, the manufacturing demonstration facility. So that was quite a a year worth of negotiations, but it was an $18 million credo over five years, uh, which I understand that the team has um, either working on or has extended by now. Um, to place the equipment there in Knoxville, Tennessee, and do that TRL four to seven transition, um, leveraging their expertise in robotics and path planning and materials um, and all of the things that they're focused on to help um, speed up that transition with the idea that that piece of equipment or perhaps just the developed uh, technology would then go into a manufacturing facility, Um, such as, uh, you know, metals machine shop, um, like the large one that they have in St. Louis.
0: And how did you go about selecting your team and, and building that up? Presumably you need metallurgists and designers and people that know robotics. So what was that process like? Are you drawing people in from other groups of GKN or were you looking outside or a combination?
1: Yeah, definitely a combination. Um, So it was obvious from the beginning that, uh, because we were starting with, you know, go NASA technology readiness scale. We're starting at about a a three on the TRL. Um, So it was important that we had some blue sky thinkers that were happy working, you know, creatively in the more of the inventive space at the lower TRLs. Um, but what I also knew was that this wasn't going to be tinker toy technology that we were creating. I needed to have people on the team that also knew how to th- make things work in production. Um, so I did a combination. Uh, they were members of actually the, the St. Louis team. Um, there's one gentleman, and he's, you know. <laughs> He's a guy that, you know, fixes cars and can make anything run in his spare time, and, but has worked in quality, had worked in procurement, worked across the board. So what I looked for in my first couple of hires were the highly multi-skilled and experienced. Um, so Mark, in that case, could do all of these different things. Um, but he also was that one that kept our feet on the ground. So he used to kind of say some of the guys, I wanted them to have their heads in the cloud for a bit, but I needed someone like a Mark and myself from the traditional manufacturing to grab them by the foot and yank them down every once in a while um, to make sure that we had a plan that was leading towards industrialization and production and, you know, at the end of the journey.
0: How did the quality and I guess FAA Part come into play with the development of the technology.
1: Yeah, the uh, you know working on those qualification plans that then then move towards that final certification. The kind of cool part, oh, people like to think of DED as being quote new, and I'm like, no, <laughs> it's actually not new. Um, so you know, Kevin Slattery, who's on the TBJ team now, um, was the lead engineer when they uh, certified. Uh, DED for a F-18 pylon rib um, with the AeroMet laser blown powder process. So that was, I don't know, 15 plus years ago. So the path was there. Um, And I think a lot of people also think with additive that uh, certification is all of a sudden something different. And even the qualification supporting certification is all of a sudden something different. And I'd say, actually, it's not. Um, The process is there. Um, You've got to be showing your proof. You need to show your process stability, producibility, all those same pillars um, that have always been there for traditional manufacturing processes. It's just the fact that now this is a newer process so the burden of proof is generally higher. So the expectations from a data standpoint, from a material performance standpoint, all those things are much higher um, but similar to what a lot of people have done, especially in the aerostructures realm is, you know, you look to do uh, a stair-step approach where you say, okay, the first application we're going to go for um, is going to be a static structure, um, you know, not too complication from a loading standpoint. Um, and so early development was let's hit those. But, you know, always from a technology standpoint, you need to have your eye on generating the data and the properties for that next step. So the fatigue driven applications, the critical things, the you know, things that attach engines onto airplanes, landing gear and <laughs> uh, wings onto fuselages are generally where you're using titanium, um, especially for any of the aircraft where you've got a lot of composite structures just to do that compatibility. Um, so that was always what um, you know, industry needs to be marching towards. Um, but I think the main thing is just building up that database Um, to be able to give confidence to the certifying authorities that, yep, we, we have a plan. We're going to follow the plan and here's the data to show um, that long-term this, this product is going to be good, you know, to, to perform to that application requirement.
0: And do you think that's easier or harder inside of a big company and organization like GKN? I know we'll get into your, your current work and, um, in a bit, but you've, you subsequently worked on with a large number of companies and in different capacities, kind of how had, was the qualification challenge uh, easier with, within GKN because you had structure already or being able to talk to you know, aviation authorities or look at past projects that had utilized the technology that wasn't necessarily starting from scratch?
1: Yeah, I think um, there were portions of it that were absolutely a blessing, and then there were a few that were definitely a curse. Um, so, the good part about being a part of a large company like that is there were a huge amount of resources out there, um, whether it was on the engine side or the aerostructure side, there were people. Um, you know, with design capabilities, as well as the quality. So one thing that was great is we do these technology reviews, and you'd build a committee for your, you know, technology review that had a variety of people on it. Um, so they would be from different countries, they would be with different backgrounds, and it really, really helped. I mean, it was <laughs> hard sometimes, because they're asking questions that maybe you're not ready to answer, but it made it a robust more robust process for saying hey are you taking these correct boxes you know those types of things i think the other thing is yeah having you know a known name within the industry when you call people they know what your business does and they understand that you know you being involved in those conversations whether that's with the faa or otherwise Um, that name carried weight and it made it easier to have those active conversations. So I think that big company bit was great in that space. Um, Some of the curse side of things um, was really just in, well, we do things this way and uh, thou shalt do it this way. Well, when you're developing a new technology, you might be breaking the mold for (laughs) how return on investment is calculated how you even quote jobs, you know, you're building up material versus taking it down. So there were different parts of the business um, that sometimes it was a really, really hard thing where I felt like I spent more time uh, evangelizing to explain what additive was and why it was different to help take people on a journey early on. Um, just to get them on board with what the technology could do. And most importantly for them, how it could support, you know, the business.
0: Right. And so you moved on from GCAN a few years ago. What was the next step after that?
1: So I had, um, I had the opportunity after the, the AM Center to, to lead technology for, for GKN, which was which a lot of fun. It was challenging, um, but for the Aerostructures North America Division, but it, it gave me some perspectives across, you know, composites, some other metallic technologies. Um, but through that, um, I had had the opportunity. It was actually, I had met John Barnes. Um, I was actually a part of a panel that got to interview him <laughs> for a role at GKN, Um, And I think he uh, commented on me grilling him about friction stir welding at the time, because I'm sure that's what was on my mind. Um, But he uh, called me up and uh, said, hey, I'll be in town for a mug in St. Louis. You want to catch coffee? And if John Barnes asks you to coffee, you just better look out. You just never know where it's going (laughs) to lead. So he described this this team, um, you know, the Barnes Global Advisors and, and what they were doing and what his goal was, and also what type of help he needed for his team. And the, you know, a lot of that was around starting to put some processes in place and doing people leadership, helping him shape the team. And of course, these are all things that I really love (laughs) because I love the people aspect. I love being creative. I love variety and I love not being bored. And he certainly promised me I wouldn't be bored. Um, So, I ended up making that leap. Um, So my role now is, my title is Advisor Services Leader. Um, But essentially, I lead, um, you know, kind of John's right hand for, um, you know, those customer engagements, putting together our requirements and our proposals and how we're going to bring value to the customers and then um, organizing the team to go uh, execute and and deliver that value.
0: And how was the jump from a huge company to a small company?
1: Um, It was rough, but exciting. Um, It, you know, it's that typical, it was kind of funny. I don't know why it is that I felt that, I don't know. I felt like I was far enough along in my career that I wouldn't have that six month break-in period like everyone does with a new job. (laughs) But I did. Um, And so it was humbling. Um, Early on, it was also because John, I mean, the company was only a year old Um, And so we didn't have that many processes in place. So a lot of what I was learning at the time was learning John, um, learning his kind of approach to things. And, you know, I felt like a little bit of a fish out of water. I went to my first form next, um, like a month into (laughs) my employment there. And I also was jumping in and running a business down in North Carolina at the same time. So I was taking on a president role. I was trying to learn, you know, the TVGA business, doing all of these things, you know, at once while still doing a lot of travel and still trying to decompress from all the craziness from a, from the GKN standpoint. Um, and so I liked what I was doing, but there were certainly, you know, challenges there. I, I knew I'd made the right decision, but that first six months was definitely a big transition period.
0: And having, I mean, kind of- Taking a little bit of perspective when you were in school and, and thinking about your career early on, did you have a particular direction that you were thinking about? Was it a big company, small company, you always wanted to work for a startup or you were thinking of big company? How did your thinking evolve with your own career?
1: Yeah, I think early on, I had some fantastic advice from some family friends. So I, I benefited from growing up in a town, you know, that had an engineering school in it, um, because I got to go to the engineering science camps. And I learned, I always knew I wanted to be an engineer, but I learned what kind of engineer I wanted to be. But um, one of the the women that I had an opportunity to work with, um, Darlene Ramsey, she pointed out um, the fact that I wasn't, quote, the typical engineer. Um <laughs> not dissing typical engineers because I love them and work with them very well. Um, But I had, you know, a bit of a right-brained creative side, and I really enjoyed the people element and communicating. And she said, yes, get your metallurgical engineering degree, but that's going to be a launching point for you. You have that ability to, to leverage that and take that to a new level. I really didn't understand what she was saying at that point fully. I was like, oh, thank you. That sounds like a nice compliment you know, as I look back on that, she was 100% correct. Um, Because for me, you know, the technical skills and that foundation is absolutely, it's a firm requirement for where I'm operating today. I have to be able to have a level of technical understanding. But my strength ended up being building those teams and working with the people to leverage that extra value. Um, so my role is not to go, you know, 10 miles deep on a particular area. It's to understand when we need to do that and who the right person is to do that, you know, for the customer. Um, so as far as the size of the business, you know, I don't know. Um, my grandfather was an entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur, always, you know, make a million, lose a million, <laughs> start over again. Um, so I think that, um, is you know probably in our in our family DNA to a certain extent, but I'm also a rather risk averse person. So the idea of going to something small and unknown um, was a bit of a leap for me. Um, but now that I know it, I'm and made the transition. I'm like, oh my gosh, why were you so scared of that?
0: <laughs> right, and and I guess as as your roles have shifted or evolved within the Barnes Global Advisors, you get to do something slightly different every day or have different conversations with prospective clients or even within the team. So I'm I'm sure the conversations that you have kind of keep you on your toes.
1: Uh, Absolutely. I mean, there's not a day that goes by where I'm not um, learning something new, talking about something new, or having a huge amount of variety. Um, we, we Fridays have become our crazy days. And we had one and I was listing out and I was looking at the conversations we had that day. And I was just like, wow, like, I couldn't possibly had more interesting variety of conversations. We talked with the company about Uh, well, a large group about qualification for nuclear applications. We talked with commercial urban taxi uh, companies where, you know, noise abatement and weight are super important. Then we talked to an equipment manufacturer on their next generation equipment strategy, uh, really focusing in and giving them some tough love on production needs and industrialization. And that was just one day. (laughs) Right um so it to say it's not boring is is an absolute understatement
0: and how have you found kind of through the pandemic with limited interaction face-to-face and some of the conferences being changed or canceled or gone gone online the the shift to more zoom meetings and phone calls has that helped with some of these conversations and kind of getting people together more easily that everyone has to can jump on a Zoom call more easily than being in person or other challenges to kind of not having as much face-to-face uh, conversations?
1: Yeah, I think it's, 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 it's double. We've seen it create um, opportunities for us, and we've also seen it, you know, obviously throw some challenges out there. So for our uh, internal team, we're already remote. We're spread all over the U.S. and, and some peppered around the world. Um, So we did do some things like having a a half hour happy hour on a generally on a weekly basis, just to not talk shop, but just have fun and be silly and make fun a little bit for our internal team. So that was really important for us. And it was a, it was a nice (laughs) outcome um, of, uh, of this global situation. Um, From a business standpoint, we, we didn't see much of an impact. We definitely turn on our cameras all the time now. (laughs) So It was, you're craving that as much um, direct interaction as possible. Uh, So cameras on has definitely been a way for us to to reach that level of uh, connection. Uh, But the other thing that we saw is that people realized, like, we were going to do some, you know, we've got the training side of the business where we do a lot of on-site work workshops and you know working through things in a very collaborative fashion well when you have a pandemic it's not like oh we're going to push this off for two months or three months you know if you don't find a way to do it virtually it's not going to happen for nine months or a year (laughs) depending on how restrictive that you know that company or group policy was with respect to bringing people on site so it actually created a way a reason for us to innovate and how we were doing both consulting and training workshops um, and so we've done a lot of instead of doing a one or two day on-site workshop now we're doing you know two hour series of you know interactive workshops those types of things where we've just had to innovate um, and we're we're using the platforms that we have And we're continually coming up with new ideas to find a way to keep people engaged and to still have those conversations and to have the focus that you need, but to do it in a, you know, completely virtual and online format. The areas where we've seen the biggest slowdown, of course, are things where they want us to come on um, and do a facility, you know, onsite visit. Uh, You can't walk the shop floor without just actually walking the shop floor. (laughs) Um, But I think with some of those, and we have one coming up soon. I think where Kirk's going to be doing that. You know, we're at a point where people have their policies in place. And, you know, they're doing some significant testing and they compartmentalize their facility and those things. So they have processes in place where they feel comfortable doing safe visits. So I think it's exciting to get to the point where they're opening up a bit more and we can still have some strategic engagements uh, to help customers in, in an on-site fashion.
0: And over the next six months to a year, what are you most looking forward to in terms of you know, your career, your projects, your team, are there something that's dates you're circling on the calendar for uh, things to, to move forward?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, there's a lot of things that we have going on in- internally that I'm, that I'm, Personally excited about. I mean, I love interacting with our customers. Customers are number one. People have always been number one for me. Um, I it's just so interesting. You you get to know different people. You get to know different perspectives, and and I personally gain something from each of those interactions, both technically and uh, just from a personal standpoint. Um, but one of the things that we're doing internally that sounds super mundane, but it is a big deal, is we, we implemented a new um, you know, software and project and financial and accounting management system, which has been one of our strategic goals, which is to get us to gain traction and get us to the point where we have better uh, data visibility. Um, so it sounds like oh that must be you know, it's entering hours and doing project management but one thing that we found is we were we didn't quite have that data from the business standpoint to feel confident in our predictions as far as resource planning and level loading and at which point might we need to hire more people and expand are we keeping our our consultants fully gainfully employed you know all of those things so we're, we're in the midst of that project, and by the end of this year, I feel like we will have gained this um, significant new level of business uh, data visibility, and it's really going to take us to the next level with respect to how we can run our business and how we can keep our, our team engaged and, and happy.
0: Excellent. And kind of last question here, if you're kind of in the position of giving some advice to someone kind of graduating with an engineering degree or even starting college with a look towards manufacturing or 3D printing, what piece of advice would you give them?
1: Uh, do it, for starters. <laughs> um, you know, for me, I love manufacturing. I love seeing how things are made. I, you know, Anyone that has that curiosity when you see a product and you say, how is this made? a career in manufacturing basically allows you that chance to truly understand that, you know, learn how, um, you know, airplanes are made, (laughs) learn how heavy machinery is made, learn how, you know, oil and gas rigs are made. There's so much learning. Um, and there's this concept sometimes that people, this is hard or it's dirty. I'm like, I love that part of it. Um, I love to get my hands dirty, both, um, both in reality, but you know, metaphorically as well. Let's dig in and solve some real problems. So, from my my standpoint, you know, if you're a young engineer and you love solving problems, manufacturing, um, there will always be new problems to solve, and there'll always be awesome learning uh, to get from that. And you know, if you are building your career in that, um, you know, building a diversity of experience um, is, is huge. And I, uh, I have a young woman that I have been uh, mentoring um, back from my GKN time. I know we're good friends. And, you know, one of the things I talk her about, you know, don't, don't just think about creating a fork in the road as far as a future career opportunity for yourself. I think of it like a, like a broom, like you're on this current path, but what you're enabling is 10, maybe hundreds of different future points and opportunities. It's okay if you don't know what your five year future point is going to be, but what you can do is very intentionally enable many different versions of what that future point would be. So that's a diversity of experience. And the other thing that's just absolutely paramount paramount is building relationships. Um, Whether that's a formal mentor or just someone that you check in with sometimes, it can be a colleague, it can be someone with a lot more experience, reach out ask questions, engage. If you're going through a hard time, which you will eventually, that becomes your support system. Um, And that support system and those people are the ones that will help get you through and help you make those future decisions for all those awesome uh, opportunities that you've created for yourself.
0: That's tremendous advice. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you very much. And hopefully we'll talk to you soon.
1: Thanks, Mike.